Silviculture. My name is Greg Edge. And I'm Brad Hutnick. And we are both silviculturists with Wisconsin DNR Division of Forestry and your hosts for today's show. My forester told your forester, I'm going to light these woods on fire. Your forester says that's real good because we need variability higher. Talking about hay now. Hay now. Hay now. Hay now. Aiko, aiko, ane. Da 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 well, good morning, Bradley. That was quite a song you had for us this morning. <laughs> you working on a new theme song for the show? No, I, not exactly, but I, I'm just getting psyched up for today's episode. Aiko, Aiko, Ane. That's enough. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's good. <laughs> I know there's a lot of different versions of that song, but really, I've never heard one with foresters and setting the woods on fire. Yeah, well, and that's because you live in a low oxygen zone, Greg. You live in lacrosse, <laughs> right? So the rest of us, we we know that song. Oh, it's, it's beautiful. It's just because of all that smoke from Canada. Well, it's just creativity welling up, Greg, and, and you are a little socially deprived. <laughs> it's all about spatial variability, my friend, spatial variability. And on Silvacast, we've talked about irregular shelter woods and emulating natural disturbance patterns, but how do you work that into your timber cell marking? Well, that is true. Uh, we have talked about how to operationalize that and make it workable in a timber sale. It's not as easy mar- as marking to a target BA or spacing. So, yep. Ico, Ico, man. (laughs) Yeah, man. Uh, Sometimes it takes me a while to figure out exactly uh, where your train of thought is going, Brad. Okay. I'm on to it. So today on Silvacast, we're talking with Dr. Sean Geronimo, forester and principal ecologist who formerly worked with Resilient Forestry in Seattle, Washington. And we're going to talk with Sean about a tool called ICO, and we'll explain what that is. I'm jazzed about this conversation with Sean. We may not have the same forest types, but I think the tool itself may have some applications we can think about or we may be able to use here in the Lake States. And besides, it's always good to compare notes with foresters in other parts of the country. I agree. So let's get going. Today's episode of Silvcast is brought to you by the Nelson Paint Company. Since 1940, Foresters all over North America have relied on Nelson Paint for tree marking solutions. Nelson Paint manufactures paint designed to withstand the harshest weather conditions in the field, and the Nelspot tree guns have lasted the test of time. Visit nelsonpaint.com to learn more about their products. Looking for heavy-duty construction and forestry equipment? Check out McCoy Construction and Forestry, your John Deere dealer. With 16 dealerships spanning the Midwest, McCoy offers new or used construction and forestry equipment, rental, parts and service, and product support. Visit McCoyCF.com and follow them on social media to see what McCoy has to offer. Family Forest Carbon Program pays landowners to improve the health of their land and increase the long-term value of their property. The program equips landowners with resources and support to implement sustainable practices that help them reach their goals while also improving the health of their forests and our planet. To learn more about how you can access these benefits for your forests, visit familyforestcarbon.org. And now, back to the show. 
Sean, Geronimo, welcome to Silvacast. Uh, we're glad to have you here. Thanks, Greg. Happy to be here. And this is kind of cool, Greg, because now we're we're reaching out west with this. We're no longer like lake states. Now we're reaching out to the far west. Before we get too far into this, Sean is not from the lake state. So that's really cool. So no. yeah, we're maybe exploring some new areas of the country. And so maybe that's a good place to start, Sean. Could you just tell us uh, a little bit about where you work and what you do? Sure. Yes. Uh, decidedly not the Lake States. I've hardly been there. But um, yeah, I work uh, primarily in, in Oregon and Washington, the Pacific Northwest. Um, it's a little bit of work spreading into Southeast Alaska and Northern California, the Northern Rockies. Um, I've done a number of things over the last uh, 10 or 15 years, focusing largely on fire, silviculture, forest ecology, um, and really the the heart of it has been techniques to operationalize what we know and are learning about forest ecology and, and take it into forest management as best we can and try to be that bridge between uh, research and science and operations. And you did uh, a PhD at Washington State, you said, and that was with Jerry Franklin. It was at, at the University of Washington in Seattle, yes. Okay. With- with Jerry Franklin in, uh, I finished that in 2018 and it was great working with Jerry, learned a lot from him. I did my undergrad master's and PhD there just because I was learning so much from him. I wanted to stick around and and be in that crowd. Right. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, an incredible opportunity. And we've had Jerry in the past out to Wisconsin quite a while ago, Brad, but I've been around a long time. So yeah, that was a long time ago. (laughs) (laughs) Almost as long as you. We won't go there. We won't go there. But, well, no, you've been here a lot longer than I have, Greg. But uh, actually, I'm always excited about conversations where we're talking about research and then how to turn that into field application. And I think that's, I'm, so I'm really excited about today's conversation. You know, Sean, we always like to go back and talk to our guests about how they got into forestry or how they got into thinking about working with forestry or or with land management. So how did you get involved with it? Or what was the thing that kind of spurred it in your mind? Sure. I would, there's two main things. First is I, I grew up in Western Oregon uh, on the outskirts of the Willamette Valley and our neighbor had a, a tree farm, a few hundred acres of Douglas fir. And I grew up working the summers on his, his property, also doing hay and, and working the filbert orchard, but it was kind of one of the three, three things he did was Douglas fir, hay and filbert. So that was a pretty cursory introduction. He was he had his master's in forestry from Duke and was a very southern style forester with you know everything on a grid and a lot of intensive pruning and things like that, which was interesting to see applied to Douglas fir in retrospect. But that's how he did it, and that was my initial uh, foray was pruning Douglas fir in the summers, and I wasn't too thrilled about it at that time. It was it was fine, but I I kind of thought that's what forestry was for a while. Um, ultimately, in, uh, when I was at the University of Washington, I was actually doing my degree in math. And for, um, for out of interest, I took a class that sounded cool that ended up being the old growth class taught by Jerry Franklin that really hooked me. That one got it got its hooks in me for good. Um, and I think that class did, did that for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Jerry had a, a really good way of, uh, of getting people uh, caught and interested in in the subtleties of forest management and forest ecology. So uh, from there, I decided that's what I wanted to do. And I, I went back to grad school with Jerry to do it. You have to be one of a handful of people in the country who've gone from math to forestry. <laughs> it's true. It's, it's not a common, common route, not at all. Yeah. But um, 
It actually has ended up being really useful, though. Uh, it's been really helpful, uh, the background in modeling um, and in you know computer programming and mathematical models. It's all been, it's given me a unique position within the, the field of forestry. I was going to say, that seems like a perfect fit for a lot of forestry. I wish I had a background in math sometimes. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, it's the pathway I would recommend. You know, if you're looking to start out in forestry, just go go for math first. What did you start out in, Brad? Oh, man. Well, that's a little different, Greg. <laughs> I, was, I was in classics, so Greek and Latin, but it's still really good. It's, it's all applicable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. So as Brad mentioned, Sean, I think it's really great that we uh, are talking with you. I'm really excited about that, especially comparing notes with foresters in other parts of the country, I think is really cool. I think as foresters, we tend to live in our own little regional bubbles, which makes sense to a degree because we're talking about similar cover types and so on. But I think there's just a lot to learn by comparing notes and exchanging ideas. This episode uh, really came about because one of our colleagues, Jed Mounier, was comparing notes with you uh, about an on-the-ground method of marking spatial patterns called ICO. And so that's what we really wanted to talk with you about today. Our, we were really excited about that. So uh, I'm glad we can, uh, we can make this conversation happen. Yeah. And Greg, part of that conversation and, and what we heard about was Jed always talking about ICO. And, and Sean, you know a lot more. Actually, I have to admit, I this is one of those things that I kind of read about. I've I looked into this stuff, but if you could tell us what does ICO stand for? ICO stands for individuals, clumps, and openings. And so, where does that? How does that uh, work into the management there? How does that? I, I okay, so I understand what it stands for now. So how how does that uh, apply to management, or how would you use ICO? Yeah, it's essentially uh, an attempt at. I would say, hopefully successful attempt at quantitative codification of the fine scale elements of spatial patterns that we see in uh, certain forests. Um, and that specifically came about because of research into historical conditions in, in dry, frequent fire forests. Uh, I think there's been some, uh, some evidence that this, these kinds of elements of pattern play out in different forest types, and but it's it's certainly the most salient in forests with intact fire regimes, where uh, fire appears to be in a sort of feedback loop with this pattern in the forest, and it it becomes self sustaining. The spatial pattern of trees kind of guides the fire to burn in a certain way. The fire burning that way reinforces the spatial patterns of trees, and so we see specifically that. The, it commonly can be the the patterns of the forest can be looked decomposed as a mosaic of individual trees standing alone with no no close neighbors, um, clumps of trees growing more tightly together, and openings in between them that provide uh, sunlight and uh, fire breaks and things like that. And each of the three elements has their own their own characters: the character of an individual tree growing by itself with a large full crown and high leaf area and things like that uh, is pretty different than the character of a clump of trees growing together. They sort of form a symbol, sing, single unit. They might be root grafting. They might be sharing resources via mycorrhizae. 
um, and the openings provide their own functions too. So it's kind of a way to uh, put a lens on the spatial patterns of the forest, be able to view it by these discrete elements and the elements uh, we think parallel some of the functions that occur in in when those structural conditions are present. And Sean, what what forest types typically in your region would you be applying these that would have maybe that uh, frequent fire regime and you'd find this sort of clump individual opening sort of structure across that forest? Well, the most classic example is going to be a dry ponderosa pine forest. And the that occurs primarily in the inland part of our region. Um, on the east side of the Cascades Mountains, uh, and the, specifically the dry ponderosa pine type occurs more and more as you get farther south into southern Oregon, the Pumas Plateau region there, but also in the in the east side of the Washington Cascades in the Blue Mountains and, and areas like that. We also see it a lot in the similar ponderosa pine forests of uh, northern Arizona. And it it does occur in other forest types, but it's just it's just absolutely the clearest in the dry ponderosa pine type. When you when you're working in those types or when you're in that say that cover type, are there certain conditions where you go, oh yeah, I could use this kind of marking here versus like say uh or how how do you tease that out? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. One of the real uh, one of the times when it's it's really useful to have a tool to aid you in marking when you're trying to get heterogeneous spatial patterns as your outcome is when you have very little to no heterogeneity to begin with. An example is if you have a even-aged ponderosa pine plantation that's that's really dense and evenly spaced. That's um, in some ways a blank canvas is harder than a canvas that already has some messiness on it. And so, uh, ICO is a is a great tool when you have a very even forest conditions to help you introduce that pattern. In contrast, you know a lot of forests in the West we still have a fair amount of legacy trees, especially on public lands, trees that were already old at the time of uh, colonization by white settlers. And when you have a substantial population of those legacy trees, that gives you something to work off of. And ICO can still be useful in those circumstances, certainly. Um, but having having the legacy structure to work off of gives you a leg up. So I think the the clearest use, the, the mm-hmm time when you get the most bang for your buck by going with a system like ICO is when you have a really even age stand to start with and you're trying to introduce heterogeneity from scratch, essentially. That makes sense to me. I could see where you already have some of that legacy structure. You might be taking advantage of opportunities, right, of where you have scattered older individuals, as you were discussing, or openings or things like that and just kind of enhancing it. But in that plantation setting, you're really just starting from ground zero. Yeah. And composition has a role to play as well. In in our driest pine stands, it often is 100% ponderosa pine or nearly so. Once we start getting into our dry mix conifer and even our moist mix conifer forests, a lot of the individuals, clumps and openings patterns are still present and, and we're still historically present based on our reconstructed data. But when you're marking today, a lot of your mark might just be driven by species preference and you have a little bit less room to play with the spatial pattern sometimes. Not always, but but sometimes. So there are different elements such as composition that have a have a role to play as well. How so 
So I'm kind of intrigued because it's it's interesting. You have a kind of like a a target you're aiming at, right? But how do you know what that what that target should be when you're using something like this? Or how would you how would you define like? So we're talking about individual trees, clumps, and openings. How do you uh, decide what you need for that? Yeah, the best way or the easiest way I might say is is to have some reference condition that you're aiming for, and that reference condition can be based on basically any forest that you like and you want you want your uh that you know your area of interest to end up like that then you're gonna you're gonna prescribe something like that and what we've done to inform reference conditions or reference stands is to uh is we did a series of reconstruction stem map studies across oregon and washington in five different locations across oregon and washington in different uh environmental conditions we put in networks of large stem mapped plots, 10 acre plots roughly, where we found all of the old trees and old snump, stumps and logs and snags and all the evidence we could find of trees that we believe alive in 1890. We did a lot of coring to, to estimate that and generated a chronology and reconstructed the stand conditions based on that to see what, in spatially explicit terms, what the stands looked like in, in 1890. And we ended up with several hundred acres across the region stem mapped this way. And that is probably the most valuable input we have for determining reference conditions right now, because we know um, we, have a, we have a good idea of the broad envelope of pattern and structure conditions that existed um, in 1890. And we chose that year because uh, in all the fire histories we looked at, that was sort of the last normal fire year before the effects of grazing and fire suppression became really evident in the firing record. So that picture gives us reference conditions across a broad biophysical environment, and we can choose which set or subset of uh, reference sites in that reconstructed data set to look at based on forest type and climate and other um, other concerns. The other thing I'll mention is that we're not necessarily just taking the numbers we measured and using them directly. They are information that is going into making our decision. And, and we have to use subcultural judgment still to interpret how we're going to use that information. In some cases, it might be wholly appropriate to take the historical numbers and just use them directly as a target. But times have changed. Uh, sometimes you're working near the wildland urban interface and you you need to bring some other factors into account. Um, you know, in terms of trees per acre and basal area, those historical reconstructed stands had had few trees and relatively few trees and they were very large. And you're just not going to get there in a single, you can't grow a 400 year old tree by thinning. Um, you're not going to get there in a single entry. So there's a lot of interpretation that has to happen to really turn them into uh, targets. But having that robust reference condition data set was, was a really big step for us regionally in, in knowing what, uh, what the universe of target conditions might look like. And maybe you already answered this question in a way, but what if you don't have those reference conditions? And maybe that's where the professional judgment comes into play. Yeah, that is, um, you know, I, I tried to frame it at the beginning as, you know, any reference stand that you like can can serve as as a target. And and that's true. You know, um, I don't know how prevalent this is. I know it's I'm pretty sure it's not prevalent in the Lake States, but we also have some places in California and Montana that have 
active fire conditions today. And that's, you know, they've had active fire regimes over the last 60 years. So that's another place that's interesting to look for reference conditions. It could also be created out of thin air and professional judgment. If that, you know, that may be more of an experimental approach, try it and see, and then monitor and refine that over time. Um, And then the other thing I'll mention that's really interesting to me is that, you know, this is within a region, but even in really disparate parts of our region, and we have an environmentally diverse region in the Pacific Northwest, even in, in different parts of it, a very consistent envelope of conditions uh, emerges. And I've also seen evidence from, from the Southwestern United States that is not you know identical, but similar ranges of variation where uh, the, the signature of spatial pattern in an active fire landscape is uh, it pushes things in, in a certain direction. So I think there's a lot you can that to, a lot to be learned from other regions um, that could inform that expert judgment just based on kind of what fire does. And it's never going to be totally irrespective of the the trees and the environment and the you know those species. But there's something about the patterns that fire creates that hold um, at least across our region from the very wet you know, mixed conifer forests of northeastern Washington to the dry pine forests of south central Oregon. Um, The other thing there is that moisture conditions seem to give sort of a broader availability of options. Uh, The drier it is, the a little bit more narrowed in you are on on the options available for the structure. And as it gets moisture and moisture, you, you can still have a very open forest condition that's maintained by fire or you have the option of supporting denser forest too. So it kind of gets com- more complex and diverse as you get to the moisture end. And that's those are the factors that, where local experience will factor in and inform the professional judgment of, of uh, what targets should be in the absence of historical reference conditions. Sean, would you call this, um, would you say this is ecological restoration or rejuvenation then as part of forest management? Yeah, primarily. I think it's not necessarily the case that ICO only is to be used for restoration. It's pretty much the case that it only has been used for restoration. I could see the possibility of designing a more production-based silvicultural system around it. And the benefit of it would be uh, there's, you know, empirically, it seems that having forests with this kind of heterogeneous spatial pattern gives you some better resistance and resilience to a variety of disturbances. And that could be invaluable in a production environment as well as as a restoration tool. I don't, you know, know of any studies that have quantified the sort of financial alternatives there, and and whether that level of resistance that you get, the marginal improvement in resistance from having an ICO like stand, is is that going to pay off financially in the long term or not? But definitely, I I like to think of ICO as a tool that helps you quantify and track spatial pattern as you're marking. Or, or monitoring treatments after the fact. And it's not necessarily a restoration tool. It's not necessarily anything other than just a tool for quantifying spatial pattern. I know where you're going with that, Brad, because we, we've had this conversation, Sean, about oak woodland restoration. And can you could you do some of those variable spatial patterns that you might find in those situations, but in a working forest kind of context right. to get some of the benefits of both areas. So just like you said. Yeah. And you absolutely could. Um, and maybe I should just, this might be a good time to just mention a little more specifically about what it is 
that that ICO is or what we do while marking that that you know is different. I don't know. Do you think that's a good t- good time to mention that? Yeah, sure. Yeah, no, for sure. Okay, sure. So the way that we use the reference conditions that we've measured is is uh, by looking at the distribution of clump sizes in the stem maps that we've measured. So we have a map of all the trees in 1890, and we decide just kind of, ar- not arbitrarily, but um, as a simplification, we decide that any tree that's within 20 feet or six meters of another tree is within is in the same clump as that tree. And that can percolate out. So if you have a, a line of trees, you know, that are all less than 20 feet apart, they're all part of the same clump. And we, we choose just a simple single threshold value because it's operational in the field. And you don't spend time arguing about, well, this tree's leaning this way and its crown's not touching the other one. And just stem to stem 20 feet. So we take that rule and we we tally up the sizes of every clump within the stem map, that historical stem map. So we say, here's a clump of 10 trees. Here's a clump of five trees. Here's a clump of one, an individual. Here's a clump of two. Okay, we tally all that up. And in the end, we summarize it in terms of what percent of trees are in clumps of different sizes. So the prescription would be something like 30% of trees are individuals with no neighbors within 20 feet. 45% of trees are trees in small clumps of two, three, or four trees, uh, and so on for medium clumps, five to nine trees, uh, This such and so percent in clumps of 10 to 15 trees, and maybe we even have a category of 16 plus or some, you know, you can set the categories, but those are typically the breaks we use. So you end up with four or five numbers of the proportion of trees that are individuals, small clumps, medium clumps, large clumps that you want in the residual stand. So that's summarizing the reference conditions. And then if you want, you can use your expert judgment to fiddle with those numbers a little bit and say, I want some more individuals here. I want some more large clumps. Then we take that out and basically do the reverse when we're marking. You're painting trees. In the simplest form, there's you know somebody with a, a tally sheet keeping track of all this, and there's a, a marking crew with paint guns. And as they mark, they just call out, you know, whether you're painting leaf trees or cut trees, it doesn't really matter. You can sort of visualize what you're leaving behind. And you can say, I've got a clump of three. I've got a clump of five. And the tally person keeps track of that. And from time to time, sums up the proportions and says, oh, we need some more large clumps. If you find a good opportunity to leave one, leave one of those. Oh, we're a little high on individuals. Start leaving some more pairs. And that's just the process of feedback based on the quantitative tracking of clumps in different size categories. Uh, that helps you stay on target. Are the openings done the same way or do they just come de facto? Yeah, the openings, they can come de facto. It's harder to track openings, right? They're the absence of trees and it's harder to say I have such and so of an opening here. It's not a discrete thing that's easily counted in the field. And so we've obviously, it's been more of a challenge to figure out how to implement that than than the tree-based stuff. But what we've, from a lot of experience, we've found that that people do... If, if you tell somebody to go and mark variably, they'll go and mark variably to some extent, but the tails of the distribution tend to get missed. The big clumps and the big openings, people aren't really comfortable leaving those, even if told to create some variation, with, unless there is a specific target or directive. Mm-hmm. So on the large clump side, we have that covered by keeping track of how many large clumps we want to leave. On the large opening side, what we usually do is go ahead beforehand um, and identify, maybe it's based on some LIDAR analysis plus some groundwork, 
identify locations for any of the largest clumps in the stand and just flag those out ahead of time or just mark them on a uh, as a GPS polygon and and the you know marking crew has a tablet and they know where it, where it's situated. And any opening larger than a quarter or a half an acre, it's probably a good idea to just intentionally set that ahead of time or just know in your head as the marking crew, okay, we need to get uh, one half acre opening somewhere in this quadrant of the unit. So let's just keep an eye out for for where it's going to be and and we'll go mark it out. One other thing we've done that's been effective is to is to go ahead of time and to get these long sinuous openings that are sometimes that we see in the historical data is to flag out sort of a snaky line in a place that makes sense and have the marking crew just take everything that's, you know, 50 to 100 feet off of that line. And that's that's a way you can get a nice long snaky opening. That's really interesting because we find that uh, also in doing something like group selection, that it's sometimes beneficial to mark those out separately uh, ahead of time and then go back and mark the matrix of the stand just because, as you said, otherwise it's easy to miss or people don't feel comfortable putting in uh, those larger openings or whatever they are. Yep. And, and Greg, I think what's interesting, Sean, you mentioned those uh, sinewy openings. And Greg, I don't know that we'd really do very much. I've seen people do it, but but it's been mostly like when we put in openings, they're kind of like round, you know, or, or a blob. They're not really kind of a variation in size within those or, you know, the openings themselves all look fairly similar. I have seen foresters simulate maybe not long sinewy openings, but oblong openings, just maybe to simulate like a blowdown where you would have the domino effect uh, happen in an area. Right. Yep. I've seen that. So Sean, as a forester thinking about this and you say you're out West, what kind of information about the stand do you need to have before you're, as you're thinking about something like this, or do you not need information about the stand? It's definitely best to have information about the stand, you know, I always think of silviculture as as a having a goal in mind and you have some pieces on the ground to work with and and you kind of are trying to set up the pieces that you have to meet the goal the best you can. And so knowing what 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 are the pieces you have is really important. For example, if you're if you're trying to set up a stand for spatial heterogeneity, it's really helpful to know is there any already? Is this something I'm, as we kind of talked about earlier with the difference between plantations versus, you know, having legacy trees, that's a really important distinction to know because it makes a big difference in how you approach the problem and, you know, economically and what you're taking out. Uh, those those factors all play in. So uh, additionally, it's good to know a lot about the site. I, I don't know a lot about in the lake states, but here in the Northwest, we have a ton of fine scale environmental variability where um, this side of the mountain might need a different prescription than that side of the mountain. So just understanding the site, soils, climate, and how important the microtopography is going to be um, and all those things is, is going to make a big difference as, as well. How would you do, how would you track that variability? So say you're a forester, you walk into the stand, would that be something you're just looking at? Or are you going to try and track that, like, say, like basal area variety or variability across the site or trees? Per, you know, how, how would you do that? In terms of numerical inputs, I would I would be happy to have information on, on basal area, trees per acre, you know, ultimately trying to get at some 
relative density or stand density index or something like that. And the representation of different species would be would be something I'm trying to understand as well. Um, as well as the presence or absence of of legacy trees, uh, you know, an older cohort or or truly old trees that are left behind. Um, in terms of the exist, you know, the presence or absence of spatial pattern, that's more of a qualitative thing. I would look at in, in reconnaissance. I would just be looking to take notes. Uh, the stand is is really evenly spaced and and widely spaced, and there's not a lot of opportunities for tight clumps. That's the kind of thing I would you know a, a note I would want to take or. There's a lot of great, you know, great existing clumps of old old trees, and all we're going to have to do is open those up and leave some recruitment patches, you know. So uh, that that is a little bit more qualitative, and I don't have a, uh, you know, perfect number or anything that I'm going to record w- during recon. But certainly, all the the basic metrics of density, basal area, and all those apply. So thinking about maybe some of this practical application of that, this Sean, you said you might categorize your clumps into small, medium, and large, uh, and then have a certain percentage of the stand that you're using or going to put into each of those, as well as a certain percentage of individuals that aren't within any uh, of those. Uh, Is there a better way uh, to uh, mark that? I, I think you mentioned that leave tree marking or or cut tree marking either you could do it either way you can do it either way um and they each have kind of their pros and cons in leave tree marking it's it's really obvious when you you know what clumps you're leaving behind because you're painting them and and you can call it out as you paint them in cut tree marking you have to pay a little more attention to looking at what you're not painting um and you have to pay a little more attention to the line between you and the next the next marker uh to make sure you're not double counting anything the other thing that's nice though about cut tree marking is that depending on, you know, whether, you know, what you, depending on your needs, you can cruise it as you go really easily. Um, if you're doing something like a 3P cruise, you're visiting every tree anyway as you paint it. So you, you know, take just a couple extra minutes and you have it cruised as soon as you have it painted, which is pretty nice. And you said in the simplest form, uh, the markers might have a tally person that was tracking those clumps and uh, individual trees. Uh, but my understanding is that there is an app for doing that. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, there is an app for that. And I think it was about 2016, 2015, we, uh, we developed an app. Basically, it's pretty simple um, with a few, a few bells and maybe one whistle. It does, it does what the tally person, what the tally person previously did on paper. Um, but it, crunches all the numbers in real time and gives you uh, feedback on how you're doing. So for example, it's the same, same pattern. There's the tally person who may or may not be marking. Perhaps the app is easy enough that they can also handle a paint gun and handle the app at the same time. Maybe not depends on um, the circumstances, but um, each person, as they leave a clump calls it out to the tally person who, who records it. And, And there's different levels of detail you can choose. You can, the simplest form, just record you know, hit a single button when you record, when you are um, leaving behind a small clump, you hit the small clump button and it, it tallies it up. Or you can be more specific and give the number of trees. If you want to track your residual basal area as you go, you can also put in 
you know, a diameter, which might just be an average for a whole clump or something like that. And it'll track the basal area you've left behind as you go. At any rate, there's different levels of detail, but the tally person just hits one or two buttons, that clump is recorded. And then in real time, it's calculating the proportions of different clumps. And then it has some color coding to show you what you're over on, what you're under on, what you should be looking for. And if as you go, you can put in the number of acres you've covered so far, it'll give you everything on a per acre basis in terms of uh, your residual stand. So you can say so many trees per acre, so much basal area left behind, and, and you can track that against your targets too. Because most often we still have density and basal area targets. The the pattern targets are just another dimension that's added on. Have you a lot, had a lot of feedback from foresters using it in the field? Yeah, a fair amount. Um, we've even had it... Uh, used a fair amount in, uh, by operators who are, who are doing tree, you know, their tree selection from, uh, you know, D D by P or something selecting trees in the cab and they have the tablet mounted and the feedback we've gotten basically is it takes a minute to learn, but if you're using the, the one button version, it's just about as fast as anything else, you know, you're reaching over to hit a button. Folks have felt like that doesn't really slow them down. And, uh, the benefit they get from it, especially for an operator who is doing the tree selection himself, is a little bit more certainty in that what they're leaving behind is going to be meeting the prescription because nobody wants to mess up and uh, equipment operators haven't necessarily attended uh, spatial pattern workshops or anything. So having, um, you know, they, they want to do a good job and having some feedback about, about uh, how they're doing, they've felt. Uh, the ones I've talked to that it was worth the little bit of time it takes to hit a button. And then as far as marking crews in the woods, yeah, we've gotten some feedback. The main thing that, you know, we, it's a little old now being developed in 2016. It'd be great for an update. And one thing we'd really like to do is just have it, um, have a little bit more interconnectivity among the tablets, maybe a little bit more uh, GPS tracking. So we could kind of know where everybody's been and, and sort of show a map of what, what's been painted in the unit and things like that. That'd be cool. And right now, and I was going to say, and but right now it's on Android, but not Apple, correct? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And if we, if we were to update it, it would, we would certainly do both at this point, but that's no plans yet. We'd like to do it, but no plans yet. Yeah. That sounds really cool. Is the Android version available to people? It is, it is, it is available with a, a user's manual and alongside the ICO implementation handbook. Um, there's a University of Montana website that hosts it. I've, I've shared that link with you guys, I think. Yeah. And we can put that in our show notes uh, for, for people to access. To me, it feels like there might be application for something like this, even though we may not have the, the same disturbance regime or cover types, but we're always thinking about trying to introduce variability into our stands. And so having a, it kind of sounds odd, but having a consistent way to put variability in seems like it would be really useful for us here in the East too. Yeah. And I think that's originally how we got in contact with you, Sean, was uh, our colleague Jed reaching out to you because he's been looking at kind of Northern dry music, pine forest systems in the lake states, and maybe using something like this to to create the variability that they've found historically was in those systems. And, and that's another one of those kind of frequent low severity fire disturbance systems. And I know from initial discussions with Jed, those similar types of patterns uh, he's seeing as well, just like you had mentioned, it, seeing it in other regions. Yeah. It was really interesting to talk to Jed about that. Cause that, um, 
Well, there's been interest from other regions recently. I, you know, I'm not sure why, but timing just converges sometimes. And some folks from the Southwest have been a little more interested recently too. And then there was Jed's work and what he shared with us of, of his reconstructions and the Dendro work he's done was really interesting. And it did seem to have a lot of parallels with our pine forests. And you wouldn't necessarily think it, it's, you know, pretty different environmental conditions, but um, the commonality is fire. And I have a hunch that there's just this range of things that fire tends to do when it's burning frequently. And I can't, I don't have too much empirical evidence of that right now, other than just looking at a lot of reconstructed stem maps from different areas and noticing these consistent patterns again and again. Yeah. It seems to me like, uh, and Greg, I, I keep coming back to this, but we talk about trying to introduce variability into our marking and and we and variability can be useful for a number of different things, right? It could be a, a climate change adaptation tactic. It could be, you know, for wildlife, it could be lots of different things that we'd want to include this in our marking, but having structured ways to do that has been kind of lacking, right? It's either, you know, like it's not anything goes, right? Cause we've had that. And so exploring things like this, it feels like we're going to have this or, Maybe this isn't the, the tool, but it maybe it starts or keeps the conversation going about tools that we might have or be able to develop here in the East. Yeah, I think there's also just something to the having the structure around it, like you said, in and of itself, that's valuable. We did a study with a class from University of Montana that was fun. We published in the Journal of Forestry where uh, the students each did, you know, they were set, separated into groups and each group did some uh, some marking in a in a stem map stand where they, they just marked with flagging, but they, everyone had a, actually the class together wrote the prescription. So everybody had a really clear idea of, of what it was supposed to be. Um, and half of the groups were assigned to do uh, free selection where it was essentially, you know, with, with the prescription in hand and a, and a good description and understanding of what the goal was just go mark that, um, you know, look at the trees and, and try to feel it out. And the other half used the ICO app that we discussed as, as a structured tool. And uh, it was significantly better results meeting the prescription, having the app. And specifically it was, as I talked about before, it's sort of the largest openings, the largest clumps that you uh, tend not to get with free selection or other, you know, non-structured approaches. And so that's not to say, again, ICO might not be the only approach there or could, but having that structure and having, having a clear guideline, having thought about it beforehand and, and expressed it in terms of some quantity that is, is measurable and knowable, it makes a really big difference. There's a couple of things I'm thinking about. And one is, Sean, you mentioned uh, prescriptions and marking guides, for example, and we have a lot of discussions about this. And when I was reading the ICO uh, guidebook that you were a co-author on, it said something in there that caught my eye. And that was uh, that ICO is not a standalone silvicultural system. And I think that was then getting at it's part of a prescription, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a dement, you know, spatial pattern is one dimension of many things. And ICO is a tool to help you track and achieve your spatial pattern. And so it's not a silvicultural system. You know, interestingly, in the in the ecological silviculture textbook, the Palick et al. textbook, Derek Churchill wrote a chapter that um, was sort of maybe a, a exploration, a mental exploration of, you know, what a silvicultural system would look like that had this spatial heterogeneity where, you know, you have an ICO 
like structure, this individual's clumps and openings kind of structure, that arrangement of the forest, and you're trying to maintain it over time in the context of a silvicultural system. So that's an interesting resource to look at to kind of explore that side of things. Um, but by itself, it's it's simply a, a, a lens and a tool for, for looking at spatial patterns. And naturally, you think of uneven age management when you think of ICO structure. You're not you're never resetting the stand. Um, you're not even necessarily two or three ages, sort of a more continuous, maybe it's more akin to group selection and single tree selection kind of meshed together with some, you know, more specific objectives for what the arrangement of those groups is in space. Yeah. I think it, it kind of gets back to what you had mentioned earlier about the importance of stand assessment and your not all your stand starting conditions are the same and not all of your objectives are quite the same. So there's all of those different elements, right, that go need to go into that silvicultural prescription about species preferences and uh, what those uh, tree sizes, for instance, on the individuals are not just that spatial pattern. So it's kind of a piece of a silvicultural prescription, but not the whole enchilada. Yeah, certainly. And in terms of turning it into a longer term system, I mean, this is, I think there's also just some, some more we need to kind of learn and understand here. Um, as we've discussed, ICO has primarily been used as a tool in, in restoration, where we're trying to take some, take some stand and introduce heterogeneity or reduce density while maintaining heterogeneity. And those have virtually all been conceived of as entries to redirect the trajectory of a stand, but they've never, at least not to my knowledge, been conceived of as entries within a perpetual system of stand management. It's been more of a event-based or occasional uh, responding to a need that is observed. Mm -hmm. And um, across the dry forest landscapes, or at least on public lands in the West, that's that's been a pretty common paradigm. Um, you know, there's a lot to do. And so, and so we're doing it and we're focusing a lot on what needs to happen now in terms of the restoration need. And that's, that's important, but it's not been focused in terms of any, any perpetual system um, or, or what's going to happen next time. It might, we might be thinking, oh, we'll burn this. Oh, we're going to need to come back in 20 years or something like that. But it, that whole framework hasn't been fleshed out. And I think that's a really interesting thing to think about and perhaps a productive area of research is to look at what it what does it look like to have a silvicultural system that has the the flexibility to incorporate all of these different needs in multi-resource landscapes and to incorporate heterogeneity at different scales within stands and across watersheds how do you have a system around that while maintaining all the flexibility that, that, and and responsiveness that is needed to manage that complex problem it does sound like maybe one of our irregular systems but as you were saying that, I was thinking, how does regeneration fit into ICO? Can can you implement ICO and say we're not we're not going for regeneration here? But then in just like similar way, you can say, yeah, but here it's going to be really important. Yeah, you know, when we've applied it in restoration contexts, we have often seen it as trying to reset the relationship between pattern and process. So trying to reset the spatial pattern of the stand where it's primed to receive fire and fire will burn and, and um, reinforce that pattern. And in that context, the hope is that a natural regeneration regime would kind of come from that realignment of pattern and process 
where, you know, historically and naturally in this system, for thinking of the dry pine system, for example, there's these half acre, one acre openings, and then they tend to get, you know, seeded in. Ponderosa pine is a is a masting species. So some year there'll just be a gangbuster, you know, regeneration and it'll seed in and fire will thin it over time. And so it's often been thought of in terms of resetting that natural process and natural regeneration is what would be maintaining the demography of the stand going forward. You could absolutely have uh, and uh, have an active hand in that and uh, plant where desired. That might be especially true if you're on a long-term project to shift the species composition, but you're not resetting the stand. Say, you know, you have uh, in our region, it would be something like a, a bunch of grand fir or Douglas fir, and we need to maintain some of it for canopy cover. But we, you know, so we don't want to we don't want to just cut the stand down and start over. But we want to come in and, and ensure that we have regeneration uh, of the species we want. So again, kind of like my last comment, those are very situationally based examples because that's kind of what we've been working in is here's here's the problem. Let's fix it and, and move on. And when it becomes a problem again, we'll come back. Um, if you're thinking about it in the system, you might have a little bit more formalized uh, approach uh, versus just kind of a case-by-case assessment. But, you know, we've really been in a case-by-case assessment with it where regeneration can be a piece, but it's not a, a it's, there's not a system around it. It gets back to your uh, question, Sean, about just how do you make this into a long-term system and what do those subsequent entries into the stand look like? We've been thinking about this with all of our irregular systems in a way. I mean, and it's logical, as you said, that the openings or maybe even around the individuals, those would be places for regeneration. Maybe those would be developed into future clumps and you would work through that cycle somehow. But we're sort of in the beginning stages of this. Yeah. Kind of a, maybe another way to put it, if you build it, they will come. Right. Right. Like for regeneration, like, like you're not really, you don't have to have them now, but if you do everything right, you'll get it. Yeah. And it depends on kind of what your management objectives are, uh, what the timeline of regeneration needs to look like. So in, you know, on, on a lot of public lands, it it's okay if it takes uh, decades to sort of slowly fill in and regenerate parts of the site. In other contexts, it, the decades might be a totally unacceptable timescale and, and you need to play a more active role. So my mind, as soon as we start hearing things about regeneration and fire and all this, I I, I always, at least for me, I come back to oak. And, and, and this is just an open question for you guys, but it, it feels to me like there could be some element of this that might be really interesting to apply for for oak kind of in a, a restoration perspective. I like that idea. I don't know very much at all about your oak systems and how they differ from our oak systems, but I'd like to hear about it. I have no idea whether it's applicable or not, but it's just kind of cool to think about. Well, I don't know if the patterns would be the same uh, that you would see, but right, exactly. it would make sense as Sean is saying that in a frequent fire environment, some of those same types of patterns emerge just the way the fire burns and kills trees or regeneration develops. And so this whole principle of being able to define your prescription and your marking guide by some trackable variables, in this case, sizes and number of clumps, sizes and number of individual trees, seems like you could use that same kind of principle in other forest systems where you're marking for irregular you may have to mix it around a bit, right. but it seems like 
you could use some of the same principles. Yeah. Yeah. The targets would be different. Like, like you mentioned, I mean, there's no reason to use those targets, but in many situations, yeah, we wouldn't have referenced conditions, but, but we could just come up with more variability basically to define the targets. And I mean, more has got to be better than none in some situations. Be kind of fun to play with. Sure. And you can also take a, a simplified approach to this. And this is something we've done pretty effectively in our, some of our, our systems too, is, is just to say, we're not going to use the full, you know, the full blown ICO where we have the proportions of all the clump sizes and we track it. All we're going to say is that we want to leave at, you know, one clump of 10 to 20 trees every four or five acres and just, you know, add in that one guideline and you're going to get some structure that you probably weren't going to get without that guideline. And that's a really simple thing to do uh, to just, you know, spice up a prescription a bit. If you're, if you're trying to get heterogeneity, something as simple as that might might get you there. So you mentioned that you've talked to people in the Southwest. Yeah. Most of the places where you've talked to people about this, have they really been thinking about pine systems per se? None of the other maybe fire adapted systems that we have? Yeah. It's largely been focused on pine systems. And like I, you know, like I said, kind of the classic characteristic example here is the, is the dry ponderosa pine, but there, there has been work um, in, in some of our mixed conifer systems as well still with the ponderosa pine component typically there's also been some work on the west side of the cascades here the wet side of the mountains and the coastal wet mountains where we're looking at the same kinds of structuring elements in douglas fir forests and it's still that's still in its juvenile stages that work but the point is looking at this as a general purpose tool for describing spatial patterns and we see some of these same aspects of spatial heterogeneity in Douglas fir forests where, or, or redwood forests, um, where there's clumps of, you know, uh, the biggest trees kind of growing together. There's openings, the clumps and openings look really different than on the east side in the rainforest. It's the same kind of structure in it. And we, we have explored using it in different environments. Operationally, it's pretty much been focused on systems that include some pine species as as one of the desired residual trees. Yeah, I think it has broader application. It's just uh, this is where creativity comes into figuring it out. I mean, as both of you know, uh, the area of silviculture is just really awash with conversation right now about irregular systems, whether that's irregular shelter wood, Maybe this conversation started with variable density thinning from Jerry Franklin many decades ago um, to variable retention harvesting or micro stand prescriptions. Uh, You see that being done up in Canada a bit now. So I just think uh, everyone's struggling with maybe operationally how to make this work well. And this seems like a really operational way for markers to go about getting closer to a target. It'd be interesting to see if we can convince or one maybe one of our listeners will try to apply this in some of our systems here, where maybe they're just trying to put that variability into it. Because we're always, I think, Greg, we would support people tinkering and trying this and saying, maybe it's not recreating, maybe it's not restoration in that ecological restoration perspective, but maybe it is creating that greater variability in the site. And that's really all you're really looking for. And it's in a structured way. It's not a anything goes kind of approach. If anyone is interested in trying it, I'd be happy, you know, to have them reach out to me and and talk about it. Something I'm I'm really interested in is 
is working through some of that creativity about applying it to new areas. That's that's always kind of exciting. John, I remember reading the I, that Jerry Franklin's publication in the early 2000s. I think it was Ecological Forestry or, or something along those lines. But in there, they talked about variable density thinning and applying it to maybe a plantation setting. And they had a grid method, I remember, you could go about and decide, you know, sort of what kind of densities you wanted in various segments of the grid. And I'm thinking, do you remember that? Like, is that is that like the beginning of trying to come up with tools? I think so. Yeah, I think so. I remember it a little bit. That particular method didn't really stick, but I think it's an em- it's emblematic of of you know the first bouts of wrestling with how to turn something like this into something operational. And ICO really came about from Eric Churchill's dissertation. He was another of Jerry Franklin's students, um, and he finished his dissertation I think in in 2013. And so I think that was sort of Derek was really really wrestling with that and took this out to a lot of marking crews in Washington to just go out with them in the woods and try stuff to see what worked. And uh, this is kind of what he arrived at in terms of of what was operationally tractable, at least you know for the way the way things were done with the crews he was working with. So yeah, I don't I don't think the grid thing really carried through. But it's interesting because nowadays we think a lot about sort of the different scales of of spatial pattern. We think a lot about the individual trees and the clumps, but we also think about how clumpy are the clumps. Are there some portions of the stands where you're packing more of them in? Are there some portions of the stands that are a savanna-like, almost all individuals? And so I kind of think now of that that grid method or something like it as being a little bit more useful, even at that second scale, where you're kind of zooming out and saying, you know, oh, this whole uh, east facing kind of convergent slope, we're going to, we're going to put generally a higher clump sizes there. And we're going to put a lot of openings up on the ridge and it might be kind of that next scale up of where you're looking at arranging things. And that is, um, that's where there are some of these other tools can really come in handy. For example, a, a new version of the ICO app that I've conceived of, but hasn't, haven't created could be adaptive to that. It could have, you know, a plan ahead of time about, oh, you know, substands, for example, and it could sort of know you're in this substand. So we need to track this way. You're in this substand. You need to track that way. And that could have been based on some other features and mapped out in GIS ahead of time. Yeah. If it had a GIS component that kind of laid that out and tracked it real time, uh, you could basically have a really powerful marking guide in hand as you're going through the stand. Right. Yeah, exactly. And that's something, you know, another way of operationalizing this that's been done in the Southwest that the Nature Conservancy sort of conceived of and, and has worked with foresters on is along those lines, uh, they call it tablet marking, or I think digital tablet marking, something like that, where they have um, basically drawn in GIS these, these polygons um, that are maybe they're like an eighth to a quarter acre in 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 size and they're color coded there's three or four different colors that are kind of different residual density um and then everything in between them is gets cut and so the crew can go out with those polygons in hand and there's sort of a, a first pass about you know this polygon is is higher density this one's moderate and you're just kind of choosing the fine scale stuff within that medium scale template that's already been given to you yeah, fertile ground for pondering. So yeah, we, uh, Brad and I are never against people tinkering uh, with stuff. And so if folks want to maybe try some variation of this, so, you know, within the Lake States, as we talked about, maybe some of these pine systems in our area, 
this could be directly applicable. Uh, we really encourage people to do that and tell us mm -hmm. about it. But Sean, I, I just, again, I want to reiterate that thank you for coming to talk with us because uh, it's just really valuable to do this comparison of notes uh, across foresters uh, within multiple regions. And, and, you know, Greg, we always say that we, we learn best when we wrestle with ideas. And I think this is the, this is kind of like the, the pure wrestling, right? Like this is actually getting down to the nitty gritty of how do we actually implement something right. new? So this is, this is really, really interesting, really cool. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. It's fun. It's fun to talk to you guys and get some perspectives from different places too. That's really valuable for me because you know how it is. You get kind of wrapped up in, in your world and everything. And it's, it's great to break out of that now mm -hmm. and then. So I think there's more to come on this. I think it's it's got some applications to help foresters in the field with these systems. We just have to maybe adapt them. Yep. So so thank you very much for joining us. It was really really interesting conversation, yep. Sean. Been fantastic, Sean. Great. Thanks for having me. It's been it's been a pleasure. That music can only mean it's time for the Dropbox. The Dropbox is a regular segment where we take your comments, questions, tips whatever you send us, and share them with our listeners. Now, speaking of irregular, how about cruising irregular stands? Recently, we were asked whether or not you include plots that fall within a gap or group opening when cruising stands that are managed by single tree or group selection. So, Greg, what would you do? Have we answered this question before? Um, I know we've talked about it between you, know, you and I, but that's a really good question. I don't know. Okay, well, never mind. Uh, if we have, please excuse our memory loss. We're just getting that way. Yep. Well, Brad is getting that way. <laughs> so are you taking the first uh, answer at this or am I? Yeah, I'll, I'll take a kick at it. So I would say we are going to, we're going to include for actually, if I, it depends if I'm doing group, if, if I'm doing single tree or group selection, or if I'm doing a combination of those. So if I'm doing single tree, I'm going to take all of my plots and include them. If I'm doing group selection, I'm probably going to ignore the most uh, recent openings because I'm really concerned about targets within the matrix of the stand as a component of it. So what do you think, Greg? Yeah, single tree selection, it's too hard to parse out your plots because you can, can't tell where the gaps are oftentimes. Right. And you're just looking for that overall stand target uh, data. But with group selection, I probably would stratify the openings from the matrix rather just because, yeah, you're right. I'm managing based on area regulation and I'm managing the matrix as basically an even aged stand. And the group openings are like micro stands in, in and of themselves. Yep. Now, a three beer conversation might be deciding when we're maybe a hybrid version of these, right? Whether it's a group selection slash single tree selection. Uh, yeah, that's a um, that's a different discussion. That's a different discussion, and and it probably does involve a bar. Yeah. So, I think we'll leave it there. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Silvacast. If you have ideas for future episodes or a question for the Dropbox, please let us know. You can reach us at UW Stevens Points Wisconsin Forestry Center by emailing WFC at uwsp.edu. Feel free to include a sound file of your question or a comment if you like. We learn best when we wrestle with questions, so keep them coming. Take care, everyone. And as always, thanks to our team, Susan Barrett, our editor-in-chief, Logan Badan, our IT master, theme music by Paul Frader, 
And of course, UW Stevens Point's Wisconsin Forestry Center.